The book of Esther is bound up with the festival of Purim. It tells the story of the origins of Purim. It gives the blueprint for its observance. It commands that it be celebrated annually. Purim is the only biblical festival not revealed to Moses at Sinai, the only one God never commanded the Israelites to celebrate. So it needed an extra reason and authorization, a whole story, in fact, explaining why this extra holiday was essential. But as much as the story of Esther is about Purim, so too Purim mimics the features of the story. Just as Purim is the only festival not commanded by God, so too the book never mentions God. The Hebrew word Purim, in fact, is the plural form of pure, which means lot, as in to draw lots, the ancient Jewish version of drawing straws. And in the book of Esther, events seem to fall out exactly that way, by coincidence, by the luck of the draw, God being notably absent throughout. Likewise, Purim is a very happy holiday, a day to celebrate liberation and salvation, not just reading the story of Esther, but also children's games, funny costumes, mock reenactments, and parties mark the festival. It's been filled with frivolity and revelry and not a little wine. This emphasis on good humor and the outrageous perfectly reflects the story of Esther, a comic story for a carnivalesque holiday. Because Esther is a comedy. The comic aspects of the book are not incidental. They're not supplied just for comic relief. They are the essence of the story. They define the book. They set its parameters and the way that we should read it. We can't appreciate this story fully until we realize that it's meant to be funny. Humor is, of course, one of the more elusive parts of human culture. Even with our closest friends, we're sometimes uncertain when they're trying to be funny. We've all had to ask, was that a joke? Was that supposed to be funny? Are you having a laugh? The intention to joke eludes us at times. That being the case, it's even more difficult to appreciate humor from another time and another place and another culture. Esther doesn't always strike us as comedy. We can read it sometimes for years without ever cracking a smile. But that's because we don't share the writer's sense of humor. To appreciate the story, we have to learn what's funny about it. We have to learn what would make ancient readers smile. Indeed, much of the humor is what we would call low comedy or farce. The recurring sexual suggestiveness, the endless excess of the Persian court, the preening and posturing of the absurd Persian characters, the misunderstandings, the exaggerations, the improbabilities of the plot, the clever turns of phrase, the endless puns. Indeed, it's rather akin to an Oscar Wilde play. Perhaps the best primer for learning to appreciate Esther's comedic elements is Wilde's The Ideal Husband. All this humor, though, is put to very serious purpose. Indeed, it combines serious themes with comic style. The ideal husband, too, for all its wit and charm, addresses solemn issues. Gender equality, suffrage, class consciousness, civic duty, personal fidelity, and above all, the importance of honesty. 
Esther, too, approaches very serious themes through the medium of comedy. It deals directly with bigotry, exploitation, ambition, Jewish identity, hubris, and divine silence. With these preliminary comments in place, we're almost ready to turn to Esther. Before we do, though, it should also be noted that our passage tonight, Esther 5.9 to 6.13, is the center of the whole book. The book of Esther is framed as an elaborate palestrophe. That is to say, the opening scene about Ahasuerus' greatness is mirrored by the book's last scene about Ahasuerus' greatness and Mordecai's greatness. The book's second scene, the king's great wine feast, is mirrored by the book's next to last scene, the Jewish banquet, and so on and so on, building to the middle that we find here in this passage. Chapter 5 began, as I read a few moments ago, with Esther's petition to her husband Ahasuerus. She asks that he and Haman attend a wine feast the following night. At this feast, she promises to reveal her true request, the thing that troubled her enough to risk her life to approach the king at court. Our section tonight intrudes, interrupting that focus on Esther. In our section, the camera follows first Haman and then the king in the time between Esther, Esther's first banquet, and her feast of the following night. Having received the news that he and he alone would be attending the feast with the king and queen, our narrator reports in verse 6 that Haman went out that day happy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was infuriated with Mordecai. Haman leaves the palace swelled with pride and self-importance. His good spirits, though, are spoiled by the presence of Mordecai, who still serves in the king's palace, for that's what it means to be in the king's gate. It means he's empowered to come and go on the king's business. Mordecai, as we've seen in the story before, will not give deference to Haman. He refuses to show Haman the fear that he so desires. Indeed, throughout the book, Mordecai is responsibly unresponsive to Haman. Some see Mordecai's unresponsiveness as foolhardiness, putting himself at risk for nothing. But Mordecai knows that a death sentence hangs over all Jews in Persia, thanks to Haman's manipulation of King Ahasuerus. What personal danger might be posed by his refusal to honor Haman's pride is insignificant when compared with the doom that awaits the whole community. The narrator continues in this way. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons, as if they didn't know, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he'd advanced him above the officials and the ministers of the king. And Haman added, even Queen Esther, let no one but myself come with the king to a banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this does me no good so long as I see the Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Blustering and braggadocious, Haman gathers his family and friends to impress them with his importance. 
He begins by recounting the traditional ancient Near Eastern symbols of success, his wealth and his many sons. Not knowing that he's fated to lose both of them by Esther's well-laid trap. He follows this with an announcement of the private banquet scheduled for the following night. The real reason for this family gathering, though, becomes clear in the last verse. Yet all this does me no good as long as I see the Jew Mordecai sitting in the king's gate. <laughs> His implicit question is hanging in the air. What shall we do about Mordecai? Zeresh, his wife, has a ready answer. His wife, Zeresh, and his friend said to him, let a stake 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai spitted upon it. Then go with the king to the banquet in good spirits. This advice pleased Haman. Then he had the stake made. I'm reminded at this point in the story of the preposterous claim of the king's nobles back in the first chapter of the book that every man has the right to absolute authority within his own household. Haman, in ironic contrast, needs his whole family and circle of friends to prop up his vanity and help him develop a plan to deal with something as trivial as Mordecai's unresponsiveness. Zeresh knows that Ahasuerus, like Haman, incidentally, is weak and can be pushed into any action. Indeed, Haman exploited this same royal weakness to secure the order for the destruction of the Jewish community. Having erected his stake, Zeresh says, Haman can go to the banquet in good cheer, knowing that Mordecai's execution is as good as assured. So, Haman's good spirits, which were ruined by Mordecai's dignity, are restored, and all is well in his world again. Chapter 6 begins this way. That night the king could not sleep. So he gave orders to bring the book of records, the annals, and they were read to the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants attending him said, Nothing's been done for him. By coincidence, the king couldn't sleep. By coincidence, he whiled away the time listening to a reading of the royal annals. By coincidence, the reader stumbled upon the passage about Mordecai's discovery of the assassination plot. And by coincidence, Haman has just arrived in the palace to talk to the king about that very man. The king says to his servant, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai spitted upon the stake that he had prepared for him. So the king's servants told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? Haman said to himself, who would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, with a royal crown on its head, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let him robe the man whom the king wishes to honor, 
and let him conduct the man on horseback through the open squares of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. The misunderstandings begin here. Mordecai is on the king's mind. Mordecai is on Haman's mind, but for opposite reasons. The king speaks first, as is fitting. So Haman will never get a chance to explain why he came or to make his request. Haman, of course, assumes that he is the subject of the king's interest. Haman is caught up with the phrase, whom the king wishes to honor. He savors it again and again in his speech. And indeed, he begins with this line rather than the expected, if it please the king. In Haman's brief hesitation between the king's question and his answer, which is actually reflected in the broken Hebrew syntax at this point, one can sense his nervous greediness. He's wondering exactly how much he can dare to ask for. In that moment, he reaches for royal honors. He wants the king's robe. He wants the king's horse. He wants a crown for the horse, his one attempt to temper that overreaching. And he wants to be waited upon by the most noble official in all the land. Here, Haman's true aspirations are laid open to the reader. Indeed, Ahasuerus is not aware of it, but Mordecai's former good deed has just revealed, to the reader anyway, a second plot against the throne. Ahasuerus, oblivious as always, does not note the implications of Haman's tone or his words. The king says to Haman, quickly take the robes and the horse as you've said, and do so to the Jew Mordecai who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and robed Mordecai and led him riding through the open squares of the city, proclaiming, thus will be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. Inadvertently, the king twice reminds Haman that he devised these honors, further pricking his wounded pride. The thickness of the king is also on show again when he fails to connect the Jew Mordecai with the decree that he signed <laughs> condemning the Jewish community. In fact, according to the broader story, Mordecai's been wearing his mourning garb in the palace, and the king has not taken sufficient note of it to wonder why. The king neither intended to give royal honors to Mordecai, nor to humiliate Haman. It's Haman's blundering pride that brought about both of these things. The farcical quality of the scene derives from the many misapprehensions, miscommunications, and misguided assumptions of our two main Persian characters. It's right here in this moment that the great reversal in fortune for Haman, between Haman and Mordecai, has begun. Haman has quickly gone from joy to mourning, from honor to servitude. Mordecai has gone from mourning to splendor, and from abuse to adulation. As always, though, Mordecai takes it all in without response, accepting the honors, saying nothing. Haman, in contrast, hurries home for more advice and consolation. 
When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends, everything that happened to him, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him. You will surely fall before him. Now, the response of Zeresh is curious to a modern Western mind. She sees in the events of the day a portent. Fate is aligning against Haman. He has pitted himself against an undefeatable foe. What reveals this to her are the coincidences. Haman went to the king seeking Mordecai's death and was forced instead to honor him. Haman and the king had simultaneous but opposite impulses regarding Mordecai. This kind of thickness of coincidence is never coincidence in antiquity. Everyone understands that Haman is doomed. His wife knows, his friends know, his advisors know. Everyone except for him. The final step in his fall, both literal and figurative, awaits the next chapter, which you'll see in two weeks' time. The book of Esther does not settle for a simple narrative about Mordecai and Esther outwitting the genocidal Haman. Even though the good Jews are clear winners over evil Haman, the narrative actually inspires the more complex and more profound theological question of whether blind fate or the hidden hand of God holds humanity in its sway. The book leads us, in the end, to the celebration of Purim. But that word pure, as we've seen, entails both of these ideas in its potentiality. Both what is fated or allotted and the luck of the lot. And it indicates that this is the omnipresent concern of the book. This issue is never explicit but it's everywhere implied. In our passage alone, two things point to it. Zeresh's deduction that greater forces are at work in the circumstances of Haman's life. And here at the pinnacle of the book's plot, the continuing absence of God. Because of this fundamental ambiguity at the heart of the book, it's been popular in the modern era to assert that Esther is a secular book. This has been a common trend in Jewish and Protestant interpretation alike. (coughs) Robert Pfeiffer, for example, argued that for the writer of Esther, religion was a garment lightly discarded when it hindered his aims. Far from being valorized, this is seen as a failing of the book by most interpreters. Even Martin Luther, of course, famously opined, I am such a great enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all. Alternatively, and more commonly, biblical scholars and theologians assert that God is present in the silence. Fish, for example, describes the elusive presence of God this way. In the end, there is only one ruler, whose will prevails. He lurks behind the costly hangings of the court. He whispers in the ear of Ahasuerus in the night. It is of him that the subtext speaks and whose deeds it records. 
What suggests this presence of God in the story for readers like Fish are the staggering coincidences. The story's convenient coincidences are so many and so unlikely that they cannot be mere chance, it is argued. In this, perhaps unwittingly, these readers are following in Zeresh's footsteps. She, too, sees transcendent purpose in all the coincidences. There is some law to history, whether natural or divine, that makes Mordecai's victory over Haman unstoppable, she assumes. But should she be our guide? Does she have the measure of the book's coincidences and the reason for them or not? Everything in the book tells me that Mordecai is the better guide. Wise and subtle in his actions and his inactions, the writer shrewdly guides us to trust him as much as Esther comes to. But Mordecai never mentions God either. And even when he summons the Jewish community to mourn and fast in response to the king's decree against the Jewish community, he never mentions or offers prayer. So how does he help us understand the book's theology, if it has one? The answer comes, I think, in Mordecai's exhortation to Esther back in chapter 4, verse 14. When he encourages her to take her life into her hands and approach the king on behalf of her people, who knows, Mordecai says, perhaps it was just for a time such as this that you reached your royal station. Mordecai suggests that Esther's unlikely rise to royalty might have been for this time. It's not stated as a confident affirmation. He stops short of Zeresh's conclusion. Coincidence for Mordecai is not proof. So is God present or is he absent? The author hints at God's role, but only obliquely. It's like an optical illusion. One reader can see it, another reader can't. And this, I think, is precisely the point and the purpose. This carefully crafted indeterminacy is best explained as an attempt to affirm uncertainty about God's role in events. There can be no definitive knowledge about the working of God's hand in human affairs. One person sees him at work, another does not. But this is not to say that events are random. Just because God's purposes and actions are veiled from mortals, this does not mean that he doesn't have purposes and plans. Although Mordecai is not sure how God will save his people, he is sure that God has a plan. The first half of his comment to Esther in that same verse is, if you are silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another source. For Mordecai, there certainly is a plan for his people. But no individual can know their role in that plan or their place in that purpose. In Jewish tradition, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is divided into three parts. The three parts are distinguished by differences in who speaks. In the first part, the Torah or the Pentateuch. God speaks to Israel. 
He speaks to the patriarchs. He speaks to Moses quite a lot. He speaks to all Israel. The laws of the Torah come from his mouth verbatim. The second part, the Nevi'im, the prophets, includes the history of Israel from Joshua to the exile and the classical prophetic books as well, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. In these books, the prophets receive visions and oracles, and they speak, and they report them to Israel, speaking on God's behalf. In the third part, the ketuvim, or the writings, that part includes a great variety of genres and books, poetry, psalms, proverbs, history, apocalypse, and so on and so on. For most of these books, individuals, very seldom prophets though, individuals speak about God. They reflect upon God. They reflect on his laws, his dealings with his people. They respond in very human ways to them, praising, lamenting, complaining, pondering, sometimes speculating. To be sure, this way of dividing up the Bible is just a heuristic device. It's a handy way to think about how the different books of the Old Testament speak. And I don't want to overstate its value. It does suit some books quite well, though, including Esther. In Job, for example, we as readers know why Job suffers. Job doesn't know. His friends don't know. And all their guesses about the reasons are wrong. They reflect and speculate on God's purposes, but they do it very poorly. The psalmists frequently express their ignorance about God's plans. They ask God frequently and directly what he's about. Lines like, please don't forsake me. Please vindicate me. Look on my suffering. Reflect the psalmist's struggle to con concord God's activities, or lack of activities, with their experiences. Mordecai, too, has learned to doubt his own knowledge about God. God's plans and purposes are elusive. No mortal should assume that she or he can know them, for that is the pinnacle of religious pride. And that returns us to the central topic of the book. The moments of our, uh, of our lives often seem to be pure, blind chance, the luck of the draw, but we should always doubt our own perceptions. Mordecai's uncertainty, though, is not just subtle theology. It's also subtle ethics. For Mordecai, the uncertainty should drive Esther to action. It shouldn't lead to passivity or inaction. Once he says to Esther, Perhaps it was just for a time such as this that you reached your royal station. How can she not act? She can't know why she's in the position that she's in. She can't know why she's been elevated to the king's household. But she can be sure that God does indeed have a plan, and that he has not overlooked her, and that she might, in fact, be a part of that plan. Even if she only might be, how can she deny the moment? How can she let the opportunity pass by? Mordecai's question might just as well be directed at us. Why are we where we are? Why are we in this job, in this meeting, in this school, in this class, in this family, in this building, 
on this bus, in this town, in this time? We can never know with certainty. We can be certain, though, that we might just be exactly where God wants us to be in that particular moment. And that summons us to action. An extra kind word. An extra act of generosity. An extra moment of patience. An extra effort at understanding. An extra act of forgiveness. Perhaps those were made for a time such as this.